Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I am joined by Ethan Strauss. Ethan is a sports reporter who follows the Golden State Warriors for The Athletic. He's the host of the House of Strauss podcast and the author of The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. I am thrilled to have Ethan on. As many of you know, I am a lover of sports and a lifelong Warriors fan. And for those of you who aren't that into sports, don't worry. We talk to Ethan about why he became a writer, his process, and his love of stories that delve into subcultures. This episode has something for everyone. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. Shopping through that link helps earn the stacks a small commission, and it comes at no cost to you. Okay, Let's do it. Now it's time for my conversation with Ethan Strauss. Okay, everybody, I am here today with Ethan Strauss. Ethan is the author of a brand new book called The Victory Machine. It's about the Golden State Warriors, their dynasty, the rise and the fall. Ethan, welcome to the Stacks. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, in addition to writing this book, you are a beat reporter uh, who follows the Warriors for The Athletic, and then you also have a podcast called The House of Strauss. Yes? This is all This is all correct, except beat reporter. I don't think no. – I, I can't say that anymore because – and I don't know how much the listeners of your podcast know about the uh, the terminology of, of sports writing, but the beat writer – which I was for a while, they go to literally every game, every uh, game on the road, which if you're following a championship team will mean about over 100 games in a season. So uh, since like you, uh, I have I have a little one at home. Yeah, the beat writer life, whew, it's kind of given way to a, a little bit less travel, longer articles. And our beat writer right now is Anthony Slater, who does that grueling journey from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. So there's the the slight correction in biography. Okay. I'll take that because I was actually going to ask you later what exactly is a beat writer or beat reporter versus a person who reports on a team. Oh, oh, oh I could I could I could get into it. I mean that was that was my <laughs> that was my life that was my life for a while. Um and it is an insane life and I don't think it's I don't think it's a very sustainable life. I think it's something that you need to do for a while but you have to get out. Right. Like once you kind of get once you get, that's like a way for you to break into the, yeah. the sports reporting. Um, okay, let's start with your book. We're going to come back to the sports reporting part of this because it all kind of ties together. But in about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell us about The Victory Machine? 
Yeah, the Victory Machine, it's on the rise and fall of the Warriors, really more so the fall because that seems to be what fascinates us about NBA teams is they often separate over matters of ego even when they're still successful. So it's about how the Golden State Warriors came to an end and how the forces that made it uh, so dominant are also the forces that propelled its dissolution. Right. And for those of you who are at home who are not sports fans or Warriors fans or whatever, the book is really good, even if you aren't don't think that you're going to like that, because he really breaks down kind of it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like a juicy saga. Like it's like a lot of characters and you kind of break down who's who you tell us about the coach, the owner, the GM, you know, the stars. And so if you're maybe you watch a little bit of basketball or you like sports, kind of this book is still going to work for you because it's not so inside. But if you're like me and you're a huge Warriors fan, it also is super inside and you feel like you're learning about your favorite people in the world. <laughs> so it kind of works on two levels, which I think is really awesome for a sports book because that's pretty rare, I would say. In some ways, it's a workplace drama. Right. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. It totally is. And it just happens to be if you like this particular workplace, if you are, have been a fan of this workplace since your birth, it feels like really juicy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that you say that. Um, and thank you for saying that. I, I'm a fan of subcultures. I love reading about subcultures. Um, before Anthony Bourdain wrote Kitchen Confidential, I was never sitting around and going, huh, I really want to know about what the underworld of the restaurant industry is. But God, nearly any job is interesting right. behind the scenes of it. And so I, I, I did want some of those elements there. I, I did want to bring people a sense of, okay, here's what the behind the scenes of the NBA is actually like, because yeah. everybody thinks they know what it's like. Um, but there is a huge apparatus behind it when you're watching, oh, I don't know, uh, the TV show Friends. Um, it's not just Ross, Rachel, Joey, Phoebe. God, am I missing one? I feel like I'm missing, missing one. Two. Who's the last one? You're missing Chandler I'm missing two. and Monica. Miss- Damn, Chandler uh, and Monica. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, God, I really screwed that up. But yeah, it's it's tempting to think that, oh, the show is them. But when obviously you would go to see that show in front of a live studio audience, there's a set, there are people running around, there's the writer's room, right. there's the producer, there's this vast world behind the world that's displayed to the public. And I like to get into that world. That is, that's a really good way of explaining how the book kind of functions on these different levels. Um, how, so this, without getting you in trouble, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. How Mm -hmm. do you source this book? So you don't have to tell us your sources, but like what, how much of it is new reporting for you? How much of it is stuff you were reporting when you were doing on the beat? How much of it is interviews versus like going back and watching tape? Like what is, where does this book come from? It's a confluence of, of all of those things where there is definitely a period of time where I would call people and say, this is for the book. Um, A lot of it happened after the season, but during the playoff run, I would keep a running diary of things that were interesting. So I could capture a particular scene of things I thought that were just funny or amusing. And so it's just a collection of what's in my own archives and what's in my own interviews. And sometimes you look something up to see how it really went down or uh, if it's something that's publicly available, like at the championship parade, when uh, the GM of the Warriors is kind of ribbing Kevin Durant over how he's not as valuable as Steph because he wasn't there the whole time. And it just goes over terribly. Um, That's just publicly available. And I can just watch that on YouTube. Um, But yeah, for the chapters on uh, the general manager, Bob Myers and the coach, Steve Kerr, uh, I told them this is for the book. Uh, Could you 
file away some time and we'll get into it. And that's how I approached it. Oh, wow. Um, that's very cool. And so you, I, I did the same thing for, uh, I did the same thing for Kevin Durant, but he was not so forthcoming. Yeah. I'll <laughs> save that for the readers. There's a really great little exchange in the book that I screenshotted and text to everyone. I know who's a Warriors fan. <laughs> Because <laughs> I thought it was so great. <laughs> so you knew you were writing this book during that last season. Like you already had this idea. You were kind of thinking on two levels while you were reporting. Yeah. Um, in part because, because there's something to when it falls apart that is interesting from a literary perspective, especially in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And there, the, what's known as maybe the greatest basketball book of all time is The Breaks of the Game. And it's about not the Portland Trailblazers winning a championship. Uh, it's David Halberstam checking them out after it's fallen apart. And they're not, they're not that team anymore. And similarly, people are quite fascinated by Shaq and Kobe's breakup. It's not that Shaq and Kobe played so well together. That's not what, what's interesting to people. Um, from a literary perspective, it's why it couldn't sustain and why it wasn't enough for them. And it's those human frailties. And it's got these elements of Greek mythology. And right now, the big hyped documentary that people want to watch is The Last Dance about the last Chicago Bulls season. Not the first, but but the last (laughs) Chicago Bulls championship season. Um, I don't know what it is about the NBA. We could float a few theories, but once I saw that it was going this direction, once I knew that Kevin Durant was leaving, I thought to myself, okay, this is what the book is going to be about. It's going to be about why, why this thing cannot maintain and why we're at the end of this journey. Okay. Let me ask you this. So you mentioned this in the book, kind of, you talk about it a little bit, but how do you know that he's leaving before he's leaving and how, and you can't report on it. Like, you you're finding out that he's leaving from people who aren't willing to go on the record or like, how do you know for sure that he's leaving? Well, you never know for sure because the decision exists in his own mind. So you never completely know, but what we're seeing increasingly is that these guys, they're not just, they're not just an individual. They are a multinational company. Uh, They are the, the Jay Z, the Jay Z quote about, um, I'm not a, I'm not a businessman. I'm a business comma man that, right. uh, Nike is going to have to be informed ahead of time. They have some plans to reconfigure if you are going into a different city. So these things are telegraphed. I mean, I started hearing about people getting hired away to his, uh, production company, 35 ventures and being told that they would have to relocate to New York. You know, I started hearing that in the early winter. And there were rumors and way before that. And Draymond was yelling at him in, in November because he was already gone and he was detaching and he was he was pretty open about it. So even if there's a sense that he's an unpredictable guy and it could go in a different direction, you saw these breadcrumbs and there was a proof of concept. He'd left a team before. And then I wrote about it and I got I got yelled at in a press conference by him. And I actually wondered, I, I did wonder, did I influence the course of history? Because now does he feel as though he needs to show us all up for saying he was going to do what he was going to do? But uh, he he did carry out his plan to a certain extent and he did end up leaving. I don't know if we even said who he is, but we're talking about Kevin Durant. I don't I don't know if we mm-hmm. actually have said his name yet, but I feel like that's kind of important yeah. if you're not if you're kind of following well, this from the periphery. Yeah. Of <laughs> so, like, OK, this is a good opportunity because usually I do these, you know, usually I do these interviews in places where everybody knows every right, premise. Right. Um, and 
this is actually one of the reasons why I like talking about basketball with my wife because she doesn't she doesn't care at all. But she's drawn to certain things and not drawn to other things. Um, and so I get a sense of what's inherently interesting versus what is interesting to the one percent of just completely committed hardcore fans. So right. to to explain it, Kevin Durant is one of the greatest basketball players to ever live, but he's never really connected with the public in the way that he wants. And one of the reasons why he never connects is because he wants it so obviously and argues with people on Twitter and will argue with random fans and their direct mentions and feels as though there is this void, this validation that he is seeking that he can never quite get. And whatever he does get never ends up making him happy and winning with the Warriors becomes not enough for him because nothing is ever enough for him. And that propels him to try to leave. So that's, I guess, the uh, the summary. Right. Okay, two follow-up questions on that. Or one's a comment. My comment is that I actually love Kevin Durant and I feel drawn to athletes like him that are so salty and like insecure and have real crazy emotions. Like that is my kind of athlete. I love Steph, but like give me a Kevin Durant or a Kyrie Irving all day. Like that whining, that like brooding. Ugh, I'm here for it. I know that that's rare, especially when you have a superstar like Steph on the team that is like the most lovable person on the face of the earth. My question that I've already forgotten because I had talked about how much I love Katie. Fuck, what was I going <laughs> to ask you? It was a really good follow up too. I don't I know. Remember. Okay, well we can we can maybe we can maybe spend a little time on that um, because <laughs> is it it might be possible that Kevin Durant is a more realistic depiction of what would happen to us if we were famous since we were teenagers and that going in this direction of being of being so obviously psychologically um haunted is is a more realistic portrayal but it's something the fans recoil from we don't want somebody who is more like how we would be we want the portrayal of somebody who is superhuman in the way that steph is somebody who has handled fame so adroitly um in a way that's unrealistic so you know, I had a friend of mine talking about this on the podcast, but people find Steph relatable because he's doing something that is impossible to relate to or replicate of seeming relatable under circumstances that does not produce a relatable person um, versus KD where, yeah, that's probably what, what would happen to a lot of us. We would we would spiral. Right, right. That's 100 percent. I think. I, I like the spiral, I think is what it is. I don't necessarily, I like a mess, you know, I'm here for a mess. Mm. It's the same in all my celebrities, you know, like Britney Spears was great, but I like Britney Spears when she shaved her head and had an umbrella a lot better. <laughs> I, I would say I would feel similarly to you and I, I, I don't, I don't dislike him. I think the issue though is from a cumulative impact of dealing with him is the level of him, 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 him. Well, like right. there, there, there's a, there's a sense to me where, can your messiness be a little spread out? Does it does it have to be you today, you tomorrow, you, you know, right. but the problem is when you're that famous, everybody around you is validating the sense that the world revolves around you. And so I, I look at it as, you know, if we're talking about celebrities. I think some of what's happening is that social media does not interface with the celebrity mind in a way that that can even be dealt with. And that this is something that we non-famous people actually have an advantage over them, that the devices and that these apps are actually made for the scale of person uh, who is more normal. 
but it is not made for the person who is going to get completely flooded with stimuli and feedback as to what they're doing and how their brand is doing and who's mocking them and why. And so I watched the Taylor Swift documentary, which had I watched that documentary or had it come out while I was writing the book, I probably would have quoted in the book, hmm. but I'm just watching her go insane. Right. I'm just watching the like the social media brain worms eat into her and everything she's saying is about herself. Everything is 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 me, 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 me as well. And it just seems as though celebrities have always been weird. Being famous has never been healthy, right. but we have created a technology that has turbocharged it into a place where you can see them doing insane stuff like singing Imagine to us during the pandemic. It's making them crazier, I guess right. is what I'm saying. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, one of the things that you say, I'm pretty sure this is in the acknowledgments of your book, is that this book dwells in the sadness of success. And I thought that that was yeah. like a very, very astute point because so many sports books and so many celebrity stories deal with the rise and the fall, but they don't really live in the success part of it. And like that seems to be what was tearing the team apart was that this success was not as joyful as Steve Kerr would have liked it to be. It ended up being something that was sadder and darker. And just it seems like depending on who you are, it resonated with you differently. Yeah, because winning is sort of a lie. I mean, in some ways it's not. In some ways you are given incredible highs and lifelong memories, but it doesn't solve your problems right. in the way it does in the sports movie where everybody's high-fiving and um, then we fade to the credits. That's well, that's right. not how it goes. Because it's also what, what not your last yeah. season. It's not like in yeah. Varsity Blues where it's their seniors and they're going to college and this is championship is the end. Like It's like, okay, you won. Now you have four months, three months, and it's we're back. You got to do yeah. it again. Yes. And... There are diminishing returns. I mean, the difference between winning no championships and one championship is substantial. One and two, okay, there's a difference. Between three and four, I mean, that's now we're just getting to sort of this abstract territory. Mm, <laughs> it, yeah. it starts to become, yeah, it starts to become a little bit, a little bit meaningless. And if it didn't solve your problems the first time, and you already know that, mm -hmm. then you can't even project. In the way that Kevin Durant did, for, by all accounts, that he thought winning that first one was going to do things for him that it did not do. Well, now you know that already, but it's time to win number two or it's time to win number three. And right. that, that, motivation, that motivation ebbs. Okay, do you think that Kevin Durant will ever be happy while he's an active basketball player? Like, Do you think he could ever be content with where he is? In the pecking order? Uh, probably not. But you never know. People find progress and therapy and they and they change. But I found that a lot of players, it's almost like they become human beings after they retire. Right. Because they're finally off the conveyor belt. They're finally the, the NBA. It is hard to even explain what an NBA schedule is like to somebody who has not been in it. Um, be, just doing the media side of it, being a beat reporter in the past of going to all the games. It is it is mind warping. And there aren't any breaks to really sit and, and consider life and who you are. And everything, if you're an NBA player, revolves around you playing. The teams are investing a lot of money and time and effort into making this process totally frictionless, where you're never looking for your socks. Somebody is coming up to you and here are your socks. And now we're taping you up. And now we got you going to the bus. And now we have you going here. Now we have you going there. And it is on a schedule that is not 
humanly even possible. I mean, mm-hmm. in the NBA, there are five nights, they, they have five games and seven nights. And it's one thing if I say that to somebody and it's, you know, it's a concept, but to actually do it, right. it screws with your mind. And there's like a blast of stimuli every time you're in the arena, they're trying to get everybody hyped up. Um, and so they're, they're really not interfacing with life and then they retire and their entire basis of their identity is wiped away and they have to grapple with who they really are. Um, and I found it much easier to talk to athletes after they retire than when they're in the crucible. That makes sense. Do you have um, questions or do you still have questions that you would like answered about about your book, not about your book, but do you still have questions about the Warriors in the last kind of nine, 10 years that you wish that you could have gotten answers to? Yeah, I, I think I do. It's mostly, so Andre Godala said something when asked about my book. Um, I heard it a little bit secondhand about whether it was true that winning doesn't make you happy in the thesis of the book, essentially. And he said it was, but he also added, but you miss it. And so I would like to know more about how they feel about all this now that they've gotten some distance from it. Because when I was writing it, that distance wasn't really there. So that perspective is, is one that I would, uh, is one that I would like to get. Um, and then there are other questions about who did what and when, and, and, and certain things that I might've wanted to, uh, report more completely, but couldn't for whatever reason. And I can't even bring up because it would probably get aggregated, but yeah, there, there, there are little loose ends like that, that I still am curious about, but I would be lying if I told you that I'm just tossing and turning up at night trying to answer them. There is a sense I have that it was a chapter and the chapter is closed. You don't think that there's any chance that the Warriors come back next season if there is basketball next season, hypothetically, I guess, at this point, and they are good with Clay back and Steph back and that they're able to, that the dynasty isn't actually dead, but just Kevin Durant was a part of it for a few seasons, but that it actually spans a much larger arc. Do you think that that's a possibility or no? I think it's a possibility, but Steve Kerr said in a press conference, mm, I think pretty soon before the shutdown, that we'll never be what we were. That's never going to happen again. And there is a finality to that. So could they, through veteran guile and the right roster moves, uh, eke their way into a finals win, like some of those veteran savvy teams we've seen in the past? Yeah, it could happen. But I don't think they're ever going to be this again. Not with this core, not this prohibitive world beating favorite that sees the attention of the basketball world. I think something like that comes along maybe once in a generation for for a team at at, at best. And I, I just don't I just don't think you're going to see that replicated. Okay. I just asked because I feel like the Patriots, they kind of Well, I I, I should be clear. Yeah, I, I should be clear. I know about as well as you do. Like, right, I don't. Of course. <laughs> I no, of course. I can't see it in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you could, I feel like we should be using you for other skill sets. <laughs> like, when are we going to be off quarantine would be a great place to start. Oh, yeah. That would be good. I guess, speaking of quarantine, do you think that there's any chance that they finish the season or do a postseason of basketball this season? Or do you think it's just going to be like 2020 champion, a dash? Um,. Yeah, that's it's okay. So there are so many factors that make that hard to predict. One is obviously just the epidemiology side of things. Um, So there is that uh, number one. Um, Number two, 
it's not in the realm of their control anymore. I don't think that's something that has gotten through to everybody who covers sports, that the politicians are in control right now. They're the ones who are in control. They're the ones we've ceded power to in a way that might be constitutionally questionable, but it's certainly understandable under these completely unprecedented circumstances. There's a sense of, okay, whatever your governor says is what we're doing. If your governor says, don't go outside, don't do this, don't do that, you know, that's that's what we're going to do. So yeah, the NBA can have plans. They can want to do this. They can want to do that. They can maybe want to set up shop in Las Vegas. I, I, I they could do a, a myriad of things and they want to do it and they want mm-hmm. to finish the season. Some of these owners are leaking money right now and are right. desperate, but it can just be dashed if the politicians in that state or if Donald Trump doesn't feel particularly uh, happy towards the NBA that day. So that's the big factor that exists outside of the normal structure I'm used to that presides over everything. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, I want to shift a little bit um, towards kind of more of your process and writing and being a writer. 
what was different for you as a person who writes and when you were a beat writer writes almost every single day or every day about these guys, this team, basketball, what was different for you when you sat down to actually write a book? Like how did, how did that process go for you? Okay. I'm trying to think like how, how was it different? Well, there had been a bit of a transitional process because when I joined the athletic, I was no longer a beat writer. So I was writing, um, articles. So it, it got me out of the beat mode, which is just such a grind. And there's definitely, um, a quantity to quality trade off there. But one of the ways that I wrote the book, because I was very afraid of robbing Peter to pay Paul and uh, not showing the readers of The Athletic articles that would be good because I was trying to use them for the book. I mean, mm. this was something that, that that really dogged me. So one way to compartmentalize was to make the book pretty first person. And most of my articles are not. There's the occasional article that is. Um, like when I smoked weed with Don Nelson and it went badly. That's first person. <laughs> But so this what that allowed me to know, okay, I'm I'm in book mode right now um, because I'm using this tone in this way. And now I'm in article mode over here because I'm using this tone in that way. And if I hadn't made that choice, I think it just would have been completely impossible and it would have gone crazy. Okay. And how did you get into basketball? When did that happen? Yeah, um, I always loved basketball growing up. My dad was a huge New York Knicks fan. I, I didn't have the best relationship with him. So maybe this is maybe this is like the, the lodestar in my life that, that had me come back to this where I didn't have the best relationship with him. I, I lived with my mom in high school. But when we were watching um, when we were watching the NBA and NBC together, all was well. You know, it was a, it was a very good father son dynamic when we were watching basketball. So I think there was that positive association. I played high school basketball. Uh, just, you know, like point guard who shoots threes, um, and actually quit, uh, senior, it was a junior year. Yeah. Junior year. Um, I mean, frankly, we got way too good. I mean, they started <laughs> getting kids with the fake addresses and I think they did pretty well and I could have ridden the bench, um, for a nice little journey, but I just went like, hey, you know, I want to play. It's way too much practicing. Um, if you're not, if you're not playing a lot. So yeah, I always loved basketball. And then, uh, I, I, I was told that there was a, a position working in the NBA offices when I was graduating college, um, and, uh, up at Cal. And so my friend was moving to New York, he was doing comedy and the NBA offices are in New York. And I thought, okay, uh, this seems like a job I could do if I want to procrastinate on making real decisions about my life. And so I worked in the NBA PR offices for a year, waking up every day, seven days a week at 4 a.m., reading literally everything written about the NBA and sending a memo to the commissioner, David Stern, at the time on, I don't know, who he needed to kill or whatever. Um, and that was my job. And so that introduced me to basketball writing and that sort of pathway because I thought, yeah, my job, not too fun. This seems super fun where you go to a bunch of games and you write about them. I didn't ever think that it would become a real career. It just kind of it just kind of happened. And here we are. So did you know that you wanted to be a writer ever or was that literally just you got the job and you thought, OK, I'll do this? I don't. So I don't know what I wanted to do, but writing was one of the few things in my life that people would tell me I was good at. Um, and I, I remember I wasn't getting good grades earlier in high school. I cleaned up my act later in high school, but earlier in high school, I wasn't. And the English teacher 
at some point pointed to me and said that I was the best writer in, in the class. And it, it meant a lot, just embarrassingly so, because <laughs> I, I wasn't good at the, I wasn't good at anything else. I was screwing up in a lot of other subjects and falling behind. And so sometimes there's just the power of suggestion and somebody setting a paradigm. And if somebody tells you you're good at something, then you uh, attach your self-esteem to it and you defend your self-esteem by trying to, trying to get better at it and trying to work hard at it. So there was, I think there was always this sense of, okay, this is something that I'm good at. When I went to Cal, uh, a lot of people were good at a lot of things. Um, and I didn't have anything else where I thought, oh, this is obviously where I'm going to chart my course. I mean, people, when, when you're verbally inclined, people will suggest being a lawyer, but it's not as though I desperately wanted to do that. So it, it just seemed, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. And I wrote for the school paper and I wrote for another magazine and it just, it just seemed like the thing to do. I was, it, it's ironic because you're supposed to be a, a very thoughtful, introspective person to be a writer, but I wasn't particularly thoughtful or introspective about becoming one. That's so interesting. I always love to hear people's origin stories with writing because I think they really can run the gamut from something like your story where it just kind of felt right to people who were writing things when they were three years old, like they could spell at three. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like always, I just am always fascinated with where, where writers come from because they come from, I guess, everywhere is what I've started to learn. Yeah. Um, well, I always enjoyed it. I always enjoyed the sense of having a thought and just trying to make it more tangible and excavate it from your mind. I mean, it's always a rewarding process. So I think there is a, there is an addiction to that. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned this earlier, um, talking about putting yourself in your stories or in your book versus putting yourself in your articles. And I'm curious what, because it feels like, let me, let me start, let me backtrack a little bit. Because it feels like in your book, you have sort of a contentious relationship with Kevin Durant. And, and I know that, I know that you, there's a part where you come up in real life, which I definitely remember. Um, <laughs> and, and he calls you out in a press conference and he, and he, you know, he really name checks you publicly. I'm curious kind of about your feelings of the relationship of the reporter to the athlete, because I know there are athletes like Muhammad Ali was famous, you know, for having relationships with with certain journalists. And I know Our, that there are Howard some... Cosell, right? I mean, that was the right. uh, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I'm just kind of curious, like, do you feel I, I don't know. I don't exactly know what the question is, but there is a question in there. Is that dynamic multi-layered and, and very fraught? If that was if that's the question, the answer is yes. I mean, it, it is. And I think especially now to bring it back to the social media dynamic um, and it can go two ways as well, which I think in the past, maybe uh, media people had a bit more power because they could really rip you apart in newspapers and newspapers mattered. And it wasn't as though you had your own platform on Twitter to just fire back if you were an athlete. So um, that has completely changed the game. But it Do you is feel like it makes your job harder if you go into the room and people don't like you or people don't trust you. Do you feel like it's harder for you to do your job or do you feel like it's easier because then you're not beholden to the athletes or whoever? It's a little circumstantial. I think it makes the job emotionally harder. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody right. wants to walk into a room and have it be maximally comfortable. 
Um, everybody wants that. I mean, it, it, would, it would be a strange person who doesn't want that. And I, I almost envy that person. I like that. I, I just find myself often making decisions where I shrug and I go, okay, well, this is going to be emotionally uh, uncomfortable, but this is what I have to do. This is what makes sense. Um, but I think the the thing that a lot of fans don't understand about it is that NBA players are pretty atomized. They don't, they're not all for one and one for all. They're not all best friends. I, I remember when I've written something and it's criticized a player or player, you know, is angry about it. And I'll have fans who just assume I walk in a locker room and all the players shun me. The players don't by and large care about the other player's reputation unless you say something absolutely egregious or untrue. If you're angry in a particular player because you're saying true things, it's just not something that the other players are going to really care about. So with at least Kevin Durant, he was really mad at me. But it's not like I walked into the locker room and anybody else was mad at me. It's not like anybody else cared. Um, I mean, I guess they cared because they wanted me to apologize to him, to smooth things over, to make him feel better. But it's not like anybody is offended on on his behalf. But mm. I do think that that is something, and it's not just players, by the way. It's the entire organization. Um, I think what can happen with reporters in sports is that they will tell themselves that they cannot tell certain stories because that will destroy the relationship that they need for an even bigger story. Mm. But it's really all a lie and it's a rationalization. <laughs> and that bigger story is never coming. It's just that they don't want to hurt the relationship and have the uncomfortable conversations and make that person they're thinking about feel betrayed. Right. Okay. These are very literal questions about how this book was written. MacBook. <laughs> that's a good answer. I guess that's the total literal, but more like you, how you were writing. What were you eating? Where? What were you drinking? Where do you write? Do you have like snacks and beverages that you love for when you're writing? Can you only write in one place? Do you have music on? Like, what's your vibe? What are, where are you when you're writing? Oh, I love these questions. Um, the book was mostly written in my garage when my wife was pregnant and she got a glider. I was once sitting in the glider and I thought to myself, but this, you know, this doesn't just have to be a pregnancy chair. I kind of <laughs> like this. I kind of like this rocking motion back and forth. And it seems like a pretty good way. And, and I, I, I got a glider. I actually bought a glider. I didn't steal hers. I got one that's a little more multi-purpose and, and looks less glidery. But I, I got that for the garage where I have a TV where I can watch sports and it's a bit of a workout area. And it's become it's become a bit of a it's become an office that's getting uh, it's it's getting eaten into by all the the kids stuff. So it's mm -hmm. getting more cramped by the day. But you know, I'm almost like a like an animal where there's a hibernation period because I will write in the garage during the warmer months, and the book was written in the warmer months. But once it gets cold, I can't be in there, and so I will. I'm embarrassed to say I'll, I'll write a lot of things on my couch in the living room where the TV is because I'm often watching basketball. As, as far as what I'm eating um, and what I'm drinking, I, I like to have a lot of coffee. At night, I like to have iced coffee. So I will make the uh, the French press in the daytime and I'll put what's left of it in the refrigerator. And then I'll probably I'll probably be drinking that when I'm really struggling and trying to trying to hit deadline at the end of it all in the middle of the night. And, you know, it's tough. You don't want to eat bad food. Um, so you try to you try to stick to stuff that's not going to 
hurt you too much. So stuff like almonds and, uh, and, and kosher pickles, I think factor into it. Uh, but sometimes I slip and I'll, I'll, I'll eat some stuff that's, uh, maybe not as, not as healthy. I'm all here for all the not healthy things. That's really my wheelhouse. Okay. What's a word that you could never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, you know, I, there are a ton of them. It definitely is a word that I've always struggled with. Mm -hmm. I've always struggled to spell that correctly. That's embarrassing. That's not the hardest word in the world, but it's one that NBA players say a lot. Mm. Um, Russell Westbrook of the (laughs) Oklahoma City Thunder says definitely all the time. And so you would think that after thousands and thousands of times writing it, I would get better at spelling it, but there's just some sort of mental block and I always screw it up. We all have the word. I, I feel like that's a hard one for me too. I, sometimes people have words they tell me and I think that that's such an easy word, but then I'm sure that my, you know, like everyone's words, it's just your brain, how your brain functions. Well, I, I, I was introduced to a whole new version of it because I did the audio book for this. And so oh. I was introduced to, uh, because you have somebody in your headphones who's listening to everything you say. And I, I was confronted by the words that I don't pronounce correctly. That's Ooh, the other like thing what? that happened. Anything... Whenever I was using a French term, I was bound to screw it up. Um, and I would screw it up by going either too much on whatever I thought the accent was or not enough. And, you know, delu- you know, is it deluge? Is it deluge? I mean, these oh, questions. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, these questions became pretty pertinent. And it was almost a guarantee that any French term I used in the book and in English, we use a lot of French terms. Um, any, any one of those is bound to be screwed up. That's so interesting. I've never thought about saying the words out loud. I, I did hear someone once say you should never make fun of someone from mispronouncing a word because it means that they learned it from reading. Yeah. And I thought that was really nice. Yeah. Who among us hasn't said indictment before they learned how to say indictment? I mean, it just makes sense. (laughs) Right. Well, that's an impossible word to know on your first try. Okay. I just have a few more questions for you, though. I'm trying, I'm holding back from asking just a slew of Warriors questions because I understand that this podcast is actually allegedly about books. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm going to, I have a few minor Warriors questions. But before we do that, um, do you know if people at Warriors headquarters or Kevin Durant have read this book? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, because I'm getting the text messages and grousing about, you know, they don't think that it's a bit of a semantic difference. They don't think that Steph Curry was shopped around. Um, and so they've been having those arguments with me. (laughs) Um, I would say, well, all the other GMs say that he was shopped around. So what are you, what are you going to do? And they're saying, well, those GMs are better. So, you know, there's, there's those back and forth, uh, forths, but it's been, um, God, I can't even say forth. (laughs) Um, it's been more response to the excerpts that have been out and not necessarily having read the entire book, but I think those will be coming in. Um, I, I, I mean, I know that Kevin Durant is aware of it. I, we have mutual people we know. I don't know if he's read the book, but he, if, and this is clear of you do read the book. I mean, he reads literally everything that's written about him. So I would assume that's going to happen. Okay, this is a total tangent, but I feel like I have to say, tell you the story. So my brother, you who you know, my brother, one of his best friends um, has a podcast and we I was reading the book and I'm reading it and I'm reading it and it gets a story about Kevin Durant 
being upset with this uh, journalist who's talking about him on this teeny tiny podcast. And that is my brother's really good friend's podcast. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, Marcus's podcast is in this book. And then I was like, oh, my God, Kevin Durant listens to Marcus's podcast. But I yeah. thought that was so good. I was screenshotting to my brother. I was like, oh my God, look at this. Look at this. <laughs> and he actually, when he's uh, asked about it, he he warns the reporter that I listen to everything, right. you know, including that podcast. Like, right. so, so, you know. Well, maybe he'll listen to this podcast. Shout out to Kevin Durant if you're listening. <laughs> hey, Kevin. Thank you for tuning in and listening this long. My God. Okay. Back to my last few questions for you. For people who love this book, what are some things that you might rec- other books you might recommend to them to check out that you think they might like? Not necessarily about the Warriors, but maybe books about basketball, books that are kind of in this workplace drama, things that you feel like are in conversation with your book. I think anything again about subculture. Uh, so I I love the aforementioned Kitchen Confidential. Who doesn't among the people who've read it? Um, by I mean, R.I.P. Anthony Bourdain. And I always screw up the name of Bill Buford's book. Is it uh, Among Thugs or Among the Thugs? Where he, yeah, he he just infiltrates uh, soccer hooligans. I think oh, right. maybe in the 1980s possibly in, uh, in the U.K. I think around that same time as an interesting subplot, um, it said in the, the Salman Rushdie memoir, uh, Joseph Anton, that it's around the time that he's staying and hiding out with Buford when Buford's going on this mission and he's he's doing that, which I thought was an interesting uh, little backstory that that they were hanging out around that time that Salman Rushdie was in hiding. But that book's really good um, as just a look of a, at a crazy sports subculture. And then among the great basketball books that have been written, uh, aforementioned Breaks of the Game by David Halberstam. Uh, I love his book on Michael Jordan playing for keeps. Uh, the Sam Smith book on the Jordan rules um, is really interesting as a demythologizer and really hammers home just the the extent of Michael Jordan's golf addiction. I feel like golf is mentioned every other page, which uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I found that just how does this guy have time? And even now, apparently Michael Jordan golfs seven hours a day every day. I mean, wow. how is that, is that humanly possible? But um, I think that's a good one. I know a lot of people recommend seven seconds or less on the Phoenix Suns. I, to my great shame, um, I have not read that. So maybe that's one that I need to read, but mm. that's certainly one that people recommend in the basketball sphere. Um, Moneyball. I mean, that's the, right. that's the Ur sports book that became so popular because, um, people in business try to apply its concepts of exploiting a market inefficiency. And Michael Lewis is probably the best nonfiction writer living in America today. Um, so uh, that one is definitely a recommendation and I'm probably missing a few good ones. But I, again, I just, I just love any, if you give me a subculture, give me a subculture, <laughs> give me a workplace, nonfiction. I'm probably going to be into it. Yeah. I, I like that too. I just like, I just, it's like you get to be a voyeur and someone else's, maybe I said that wrong. I just, I'm now second guessing because that's a French word. It's voyeur, right? Voyeur. voyeur. <laughs> yeah, no, you got it, you got it right. Shit. Oh, I also <laughs> like the, um, I also recently like the book, uh, conspiracy on, uh, Gawker versus Peter Thiel, which Ooh. I think was another little look at a, a subculture and high status people and ego and things falling apart. So that's another one I would recommend. Okay. I got to check that out. That sounds awesome. Okay. I have, this is a personal question for me. I just have to know. Is Steve Kerr 
actually lovely in real life because he just seems so lovely. Yeah, I mean, he's I I, I okay. So I'm trying <laughs> to think about the distinction. I'm trying to think about what is the distinction between off record Steve versus on record Steve. I think I think off record Steve is a little more a little less cuddly and a little more of the NBA culture uh, than on record Steve, where you have to remember Steve Kerr was tough. I know, right. I know he doesn't look it, but to get to where he got to, he, he was tough. So he has a certain disdain for whining and for weakness and for milking of injuries that I don't think he's going to communicate to the broader public, mm. but if he's unfiltered talking about certain players, um, then that will that will come out and there's a ferocity there uh to him and i think his wife says beware the fury of the patient man i, I don't remember what the original quote uh quote is for that but um yeah so there's there's a significant fire there and so there's a bit of a difference but yeah for the most part he's 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 cool you know he's cool and he's friendly and he's interesting and he's he's well read and uh he's an easy guy to talk to yeah, I just he just seems so great. What would you say is the difference that you see the most between people on record and off record? Like, do people seem to sway a lot or are people mostly who they who they appear to be? So that's a great question. Um, are they mostly who they appear to be off record? I mean, they're who, they, they don't change a lot as people they're just a lot more inclined to complain about their coworkers. Mm. <laughs> so that's really mm. that's really <laughs> what it is is that everybody has issues with their coworkers and finds their coworkers incredibly annoying and they're almost presenting this this, this uh they they have, they're giving us this pretense of all being on the same page which right. I'm always asked you know what do the warriors think about this and it's just they're not they're not all on the same page they right. don't all have the same opinion uh, this is a very mercenary industry where you're teammates for a while, but not for long. Um, and there's a ton of resentment and your salaries are public. And so there's always workplace drama and it's not a family. And so that 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 stuff tends to come out more. OK, this is my last personal question. <laughs> I'm calling these personal questions because I feel like nobody cares but me. Um, my favorite warrior of this most recent dynasty, if we're calling it that, is Quinn Cook. And I want to know, were Quinn Cook and Kevin Durant actually real life friends? Because you say in the book, like a lot of people aren't real life friends, but they seem like real life friends. And I know that they go back to DC connection. They have like boarding school or whatever they call those schools connection. Were they real friends? And is Quinn Cook lovely? I think they're real. I think they're real friends. And Quinn Cook's got some bizarre quality where he's friends with with half with half the league and (laughs) don't tell my husband (laughs) uh, he's just i there's just something there's just something about him where everybody loves him um i think somebody on the team called him a force multiplier oh no no it wasn't on the team it was it was mike krzyzewski is his coach his old coach at duke he's a force multiplier and i like quinn cook i mean i maybe he's gonna come out and bash me because i've written in such a way about his his friend kd but Whenever I've seen him, he's the nicest guy. I played in the media game. He showed up to the media game and he was giving me tips and telling me uh, telling me what to do. He's just he's somebody everybody likes. Everybody likes Quinn Cook. 
Okay, good. I'm so glad to hear that that might be real because I love Quinn Cook. I even have a t-shirt with his face on it, which like probably six people have, like his mom. <laughs> but I also have it and I love him. Uh, that makes me so happy. I But I have a hot take that I don't think that LeBron likes him. I'm just going to throw that out there. That's based on nothing I mean, but me seeing him on the bench with KD and seeing him on the bench with LeBron. And I just feel like LeBron does not support his energy. That's interesting. See, I you might have more information on that than I do. I, I have not observed that. So I think that's, hey, it's it's plausible, but I, I am not privy to any information. Let me know. Yeah. <laughs> Off the yeah. record. <laughs> yeah. well, we, 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 need, we need content anywhere we can get it with the games not going on right yeah, now. So maybe yeah. it. Does LeBron hate Quinn Cook could, uh, could be an article. Yeah, I think that LeBron, I think LeBron wants to be the most loved and Quinn Cook is obviously the most loved and the most lovable. And so I think LeBron, there's tension. Like when he comes off the bench or when he comes, gets up to like high five people after they score and there's a timeout or whatever, LeBron sometimes just walks right past Quinn Cook. He does not high five him, but Anthony Davis uh, does. And I've noticed and I pay attention to these, <laughs> to these things. <laughs> you would be, I think you you would be really good at this. I yeah. think that kind of thing is the kind of thing that a lot of people don't notice. Uh, Marcus Thompson at The Athletic, I think, often does notice those things and follows up. But those are the type of things really where that gives you an, an entry point to asking a question and then the figuring stuff out. Oh, my God. I'm going to become a Quinn Cook beat writer. That's it. I'm just going to go with him everywhere. <laughs> okay, here's my last and final question for you for real. This one is about you and your book. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would it be? Wow. I hadn't even thought about that. Yes. Who would I who would I want? I mean, it's also it's one of those things too where it feels a little high leverage where what if they don't like it? You know, it's like it's a I can I can envision it easier if read it and love it is a little bit easier to uh a little bit easier to answer. Uh God. I don't have a good answer to that. I don't. Do you? Do you have any ideas? Do you have anybody I, I, I should have read this book? I mean, no, is, I, is it, I mean, my answer for if I ever wrote anything would be Barack Obama, but that's just because. Oh yeah, that'd be good. I mean, because he's a taste. He's a tastemaker. That's and true. And he he does his books of the year. Yeah. I feel like this book's not positive enough for him. He's a very positive thinker, and he's always giving uplifting messages. So but he even if he's a sports, a sports book in there. He always does. Yeah. Okay. So uh, give it to O. You know. Okay. okay. You can share my answer. He had Andre Iguodala's <laughs> yeah. book in his, I think, his most recent one. He, he did. He did. And that book um, is great. I love that book. I listened to it, and the guy who reads yeah. it is fantastic. Andre got a good guy to write it to, and um, you know, I think, uh, I think I'm gonna. It's funny. I, I was in communication with Andre about maybe doing a, a book exchange, but. I don't know if you, you never know how people will react to how they're portrayed in the book. Mm. I like my portrayal of Andre. I think he's he's the hilarious acerbic bastard uh, I've come to know and love. But you never know. I don't I don't know how he'll how, how he'll react to it. I thought you did a nice job with him. I like him. Okay, yeah. everybody at home. I'm talking to I should have probably introduced you one more time, but this is Ethan Strauss, ladies and gentlemen, and his book is called The Victory Machine. It's about the rise and the fall of the Warriors dynasty. Ethan, thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. Yeah, this was great. Say hi to Brady for me. And uh, yeah, we, we got to do this again whenever the next book is written. We'll definitely do it again. And everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening today. And thank you to Ethan Strauss for being our guest. I'd also like to say a special thank you to Brady Thomas, my brother, for helping us set up this interview. 
Find everything we discussed today in the link in the show notes. Shopping through this link earns the Stacks a small commission and it comes at no cost to you. If you want to help support the Stacks, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join our Stacks Pack community. Be a part of our online book club and get inside access to this show. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the Stacks. <laughs>